Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 544. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a very proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with my old friend Daniel Priestley. Daniel's a repeat guest and is founder of Dent Global and ScoreApp. He's been awarded Entrepreneur of the Year, written half a dozen business books, founded multiple seven and eight figure ventures, and is on a mission to help develop entrepreneurs who stand out, scale up, and make a dent. In this conversation with Daniel, we discuss his entrepreneurial roots, his journey from Australia to England, the state of entrepreneurs today, the role and importance of tech, especially AI, for any startups or business, the pendulum swings of purpose, politics, and business transformation. We also unpack ScoreApp and how and why it can help your business. We talk about the future of X, formerly known as Twitter, and look at mental health issues among entrepreneurs, a stirring conversation. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a wee little moment, go over and drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Daniel Priestley, how great to have you back on my show. You were on my show back in 2017. A few things have changed <laughs> since then. I also had uh, your co-author Jody Cook on oh, uh, for your co-written book of the Entrepreneurial Kids. And you've just come out with another blooming book, you crazy man, The Scorecard Marketing, The Four-Step Playbook for Getting Better Leads and Bigger Profits. For those who don't know you, Dan, who are you? Uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I've got a group of companies that I started and acquired. So there's businesses in there that I've um, started, which are tech companies. And I've uh, got another business that I run, which is an entrepreneur accelerator, where we work with entrepreneurs who are fast growth companies um, in kind of a venture studio type model. And I've got a group of services companies that we acquired. Um, so entrepreneurial, I'm a father of three. I like guitars, the same as you. Yeah. I'm an Australian living in London, uh, and I'm an author. I've written, I don't know how many, something like six books. Like that. It's, you know, the funny thing I've been, uh, you know, when people ask me that, I said, well, I've written how many books? Well, because, you know, you have the small ebooks, you have yeah, the second you, editions you of the first ones. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The, the second editions, the co-authors, um, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Well, what we both can say is we have entered the world of being bona fide authors. Afterwards, the numbers, we, we can dig around on those. So, uh, Daniel, your entrepreneurial beginnings, um, I know that they are of interest. And I'd love for you to just uh, remind us how you got to become an entrepreneur down under and that brought you all the way up top. Yeah, well, it was a stroke of very good luck. Um, I was entrepreneurial as a teenager. I did things like nightclub parties that I ran and um, selling flowers door to door and uh, all sorts of little entrepreneurial ventures. But my big moment was when I dropped out of university and I went and worked for this guy called John um, and he was starting a new business. I was going to be employee number three. Um, he was a great mentor and I had the experience of going from zero to 60 employees in two years and basically going from around the kitchen table to uh, 60 employees in an inner city Melbourne office. Um, so I had this wonderful experience of starting a business and being up close to the action uh, for two years. At the end of two years, John says to me, um, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm helping John pack his car. And I say to John, hey, I'd really like to have shares in, a, in the business. Um, and he says, uh, if you want shares in a business, you should think about going and starting your own. Um, which was his kind of swap me away moment. But with that comment, he didn't realize he was talking to an idiot 21-year-old who took him literally and I quit my job and went and started my own business. <laughs> um, so uh, at 21, I started my own company. Um, I applied the lessons that I learned and it took off very, very rapidly. So we went zero to a, a million in year one and then up to 10 million in year three. Um, so it was a very fast growth business uh, in Australia. Uh, I I got out of that business and came to the UK in 2006. 
Uh, and then since then, I've been an entrepreneur here based in London, but we've built businesses globally. Um, we've got people, we've got probably, I don't know, 50 to 100 people dotted around the world at the moment. And uh, you married? Three yeah, ma- yeah, ma- and I was meant to come to London for like two years, but uh, a wife, three kids, a cat, uh, a house in Wimbledon. Later, uh, we are very much <laughs> roots down in uh, in London. Well, and England, uh, the Britain is the better for it. So the last time I had you on my show, we we know each other fairly well for quite a long time now. Dan, we um, was two thousand and seventeen, and a lot has happened since then. Mm. I was wondering how Daniel Priestley characterizes where we are today in terms of evolution. Oh, wow. So zooming out, I would say this this is the moment where if you want to be really dramatic, it's the moment where man discovers fire. Um, if you want to be less dramatic, it's probably uh, where humans have come up with the, the tractor um, and the agricultural age has just ended and the industrial age has just begun. Um, so we're we're in a moment like that um, in terms of uh, if you were to ask an, someone in the agricultural age, well, what's everyone going to do and how's life going to look? They wouldn't be able to have, they, they have no template whatsoever as to uh, how humanity organizes itself in the industrial age, especially advanced industrial age. So, you know, buildings and digital and all those cities, cities. Yeah, exactly. So the idea was like in the agricultural age, we had so there there are some interesting parallels. Right. So in the agricultural age, we had a lot of automation and we called automation soil. We called it land. Um, And basically you just put a piece of uh, seed, a prompt into the soil and uh, and that prompt creates a wheat stalk. And you then harvest that and uh, and make something with it. And essentially, most of humanity, most of humans' job was to sit back while land did the work. Um, and uh, we, you know, we call that God um, or, or natural intelligence. So where we are today is we have created some digital soil where you plant a little seed and out comes uh, something of much greater value um, called artificial intelligence. Um, so. If Yeah, so the idea here is like the agricultural age is where the way to become wealthy and successful is own all the land and then and have vast amounts of land. And then the way to become wealthy in the industrial age is own a factory uh, where you can organize labor and lots of humans and that um, our gross domestic produce is like how much can you organize humans into a factory and produce stuff. Um, and then where we are now is going into this digital AI revolution that we're heading barreling into. Um, and, um, and this is where, you know, we're going to need a new way of talking about economics and a new way of talking about value creation and something new for humans to do at scale. Um, all of those sorts of things. Wow. What a great uh, story. I, I was listening to you, Dan, and as, as we know, stories beget stories. And as I was thinking, I was like, huh, maybe there's a light story in there. Like, let there be light was the beginning. Then there was light in the form of electricity. And now let us be light. Hold mm. ideas lightly. Mm. Let us not own property. Let's be light of foot and, and be agile to uh, take advantage of the next steps. That's my repost. <laughs> I love that. I love that because... Um... You know, I've been talking about this idea of moving from functionality to vitality. So like functionality is doing tasks and performing tasks reliably. Vitality is living life and and um, vitality is a life force and energy, an irreplaceable life force is essentially the definition is irreplaceable life force. Humans have to relearn vitality. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and would you not also think that the pandemic has let's say, put a Bunsen burner underneath this idea of vitality and what is life? Yeah, I think the pandemic drew a line and it really just accelerated everything um, into this digital world. So all the trends that were kind of meandering their way towards digital and remote working and cities being less relevant and um, you know different ways of organising ideas and people and, and businesses... And then suddenly the pandemic said, no, no, you've got to do this now. Like you, you actually, if you want to stay in business, you have to do it this month or next month or otherwise it's too late. 
so it kind of like totally transformed. You know, even at a very small scale, restaurants took their menus online and they had digital ways of paying and they started using QR codes and things like that. And those subtle things have actually transpired into uh, the beginnings of total digital transformation in the way that they, you know, every restaurant now delivers and and those sorts of things. And then at a very big scale, people started delivering their consulting and wealth management and uh, coaching services online. And, you know, that was unthinkable prior to the pandemic that someone would pay high-end consultants to work remotely. Um, and then, you know, suddenly it became unthinkable to meet people face to face uh it was remarkable how you know well we don't need digital uh, I, when i was at l'oreal back in 2008 2009 and, and i was head of tech at least you know it was a sort of some sort of proxy cdo for my division we but it was only one of eight different functions and the idea of digital was sort of some almost american anecdote uh, at the time, and then uh, you know, working remotely, no, 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 much better to be face to face, and 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 yet we've come out the other side of the pandemic. And while much of that is now, let's say, anchored in, for example, e-commerce and, and the idea of remote work, it does feel like there's a a bunch of angst as to how to manage flexible working. You may or may not come in. Selection freedom. Of course, for, as an entrepreneur, it's a little bit different because it's usually a smaller team. But how do you see, I mean, in big companies, I see a lot of hand-wringing and struggling to figure out what is the, the flexible, the, the empathic approach to optioning remote or at-work work. How, do, how does it fly for entrepreneurs? Um, well, the, the new model of managing teams i think the the whole i think there will have to be a brand new model for for managing teams and i know it's an overused example but i'll use the example anyway and it's the uber model so if you take uber there's a labor pool and each person is rated as far as what they're reliable you know their vehicle and their driving skills and their attitude and politeness so all of those things are rated things and then there are missions there are missions that have to be completed. And those missions, uh, oh, we've got a person who wants to go from Wimbledon to uh, London City. So um, there's a mission. Who would be the best person for that mission? Oh, there's someone who's just down the road. So let's assign that mission to that particular type of person. So um, if you imagine that an organization is, an, imagine that the company itself has no people and it has an origin story and it has a vision in the future. And in the middle of the origin story and the vision are lots of tangled up wires called missions. And those missions string between the past and the future. And ultimately, each little wire that has to be completed is a little mission. And we have a talent pool that sits separately. And that talent pool has to be uh, has to be organized around a mission. They complete the mission, they drop back into the talent pool. They complete the mission, drop back into the talent pool. So if we think about Uber, an Uber driver completes a mission and then drops back into the talent pool and then is assigned a new mission and drops back into the talent pool. Now, imagine that an Uber journey required seven or eight people and that we had to find seven or eight people who were the perfect people, bring them together, complete the mission, and then drop them back into the talent pool and uh, essentially do that. So the old model of labor was a hierarchy that you start at the bottom and you work your way up and um, the longer you're around and the more seniority and skills, you end up being automatically assigned to different roles. Um, I think the new model is going to be the image that you might have in your mind is point A is the past, the, the, the values, the origin stories, the, you know, the history, the legacy point B. Uh, B in the future is the is what we want to achieve and our vision and our um, inspiring purpose. And then the the thread that holds those together is what has to be done. And the talent pool sits and jumps up, completes stuff, jumps back into the pool, jumps up, completes stuff, jumps back into the pool. That kind of mental model uh, to me is is far more of what you would be looking for. Now, you can't do that without tech. 
right? Uber doesn't function without a with, without sophisticated technology. So that model, if if anyone who's listening is struggling with the model and go, but how how would that work? Well, the way that that would work only exists in a world of technology where the technology can tell you, based upon the mission, who are the best people to be working together, who who has the most cohesion, the right skills, the right scope of of skills to complete that mission, fastest, cheapest, bestest, um, and then it, it requires technology that understands people. So, in some sort of sort of rating system, to then throw them at something disassemble them and then throw them at the next thing um so that kind of model is where i think we're headed fascinating i um i wonder dan when you're doing that kind of a work where you uh, have a mission you associate certain talents into it bring them in bring them out what of the curation or selection of those people because to the extent that let's say you're not talking about employees, but freelancers, right, and trying to remain agile. One of the things that I find more complicated is finding a harmony in terms of the shared spirit, the shared attitude, shared values. And, and it's a difficult thing to gauge. You know, well, we believe in family. Well, what do you mean by family? Because there are a whole lot of different types of families out there. Yeah. And, and so when, you, when you're working in a, in a corporation where you have standard thousands of employees, let's just hope that you've got that part of your recruitment process. And, and you spend time, you interview six people, six times, long decision-making process, blah, 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 blah. In this agile entrepreneurial mode where you're quickly bringing on ad hoc employees or at least you know, people to do work, the idea of alignment is not as easy. How do you how do you rumble with that problem as an entrepreneur? I don't think the employment model is going to survive in its current form. Um, the idea that you just simply are an I I think there will definitely be senior teams. Uh, senior and what we've seen over the last 15, 20 years is that senior teams are disproportionately rewarded. They're, you know their pay is going up, 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 up while workers' values going down, 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 down. So there's something about technology that is sort of like solidifying the value of an executive but but diminishing the value of a worker. Um, so essentially, if we take something like Hollywood, um, where you know people come together for movies and you have a casting director, so I think the casting director will be tech. Uh, it'll look at things like, your LinkedIn profiles, it'll look at your personal brand, um, the projects you've worked on. It'll also look at things like personality profiling um, and and those sorts of things. The um, the challenge that you talked about with alignment, <clears throat> I think the pendulum, personally, and this is just purely speculation and opinion-based, I think the pendulum is going to swing back um, the opposite direction to what it has been for the last 10, 15 years where um Companies having deeper purposes uh, has actually blown up in their face more often than not. Um, so <laughs> they they have found that when they try to take a stand for something other than having a great product, um, it worked for a while. But a lot of them are discovering that actually now, you know, even even when it's carefully done, it can very much blow up in your face. Um, and there's also this kind of new attitude that I'm noticing where people kind of want to have their own beliefs and values uh, that they've got, and they don't want to have to align all of those things into the company. So, you know, if we go back in time, it wasn't that long ago that you go to work because you're aligned around making money and delivering value and being part of a team. <clears throat> and you got your community needs met from church and you got your health and wellness needs met from hospital and you got your and the doctor and you got your family needs met by family and and those things didn't have to go together you didn't have to have uh, a total alignment and then we went to this thing where work is everything and that you need to, it all it has to be your church your friendship group your um you know your family uh, and all of this. And, and I personally think that's blowing up in a lot of people's faces. Uh, it's not necessarily healthy for workers and it's not necessarily healthy for companies. Um, so I think the pendul pendulums tend to swing back to the center 
Um, and I mean, they or they tend to swing, right? So they tend to swing too far one way and then too far the other way. I think we've gone too far in terms of companies having to have grand purposes um, uh, that that kind of encompass absolutely everyone and everything. And uh, you know, the, the the irony is that it's very very hard to be actually inclusive because you can be inclusive one way, and the more you are including one. Uh, type of person the less you're including someone else who has different values <laughs> you know so um you know it's 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 a tricky one so you can you can say we want to include um people who have um conservative muslim or islamic beliefs and we also want to include you know people with radical lgbtq plus uh identities not not a marriage made in heaven yeah these two these two groups don't want to be included together necessarily or in in many cases there's a lot of there's a lot of values conflict in having inclusion that includes all of that so what do you end up getting back to you get back to let's make a great product that helps people let's let's create a great service that that people can rely upon um we can all agree on that while we're working together mm in uh, quite radical a statement, Dan, uh, it's blowing up. Do you have any examples of of companies that you feel like it, that's an example of how the purpose, the big purpose statement, has blown up in their faces? Yeah, well, I mean, there's well, you go to ground zero for the culture wars, which is the USA, um, and you're just seeing this week in, week out. So you know, the big one this year was you know, Bud Light, uh, you know, signing um, a trans person as their face of their beer um, and that going deeply against the values of a lot of their conservative beer drinking um, Bud Light kind of people who don't want to identify uh, as, uh, you know. Affiliated with the trans. Affiliated, you know, it certainly doesn't speak to them in terms of that. And there's also, you know, their they're having issues with how that trans identity fits within their broader family identity, school identity, all of these sorts of things. So something that they thought was fairly innocuous, like drink, drinking light beer, suddenly became a political statement where they had to be either taking a stand uh, for being pro-trans, which includes trans people in sports and all sorts of things. So suddenly it connects something as simple as a beer to having a beer to uh to much wider issues um and you know drops off a cliff um you know the similar thing target did one where they uh had um you know uh, clothing for trans kids um and uh and then suddenly shopping at target became you know a statement so look it's a it's delicate and it's it's hot buttons and all these sorts of things and, that, and look I've, I've picked two there that are trans orientated but there's plenty of other examples where it can be, you know, a bit of a tightrope. So, for example, um, Apple releases a video about Mother Nature coming into the office and talking about, um, you know, whether they're doing a good job or not. And suddenly it starts to tiptoe on the grounds of uh, if you're using Apple products, then you're pro-WEF, World Economic Forum policy to control the world and have a climate agenda that pins people down to 15 minute cities. And it's like, whoa, I just want to buy a phone. <laughs> like, mm. yeah. So, so these things are, these things are, are difficult issues in the, in, in the modern world. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the accelerate your business growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. That is a, a great viewpoint, Dan, because it's true. When I think of what those examples, I think of misreading your, your stakeholders. 
and and it, it, it for me it's more a misinterpretation or poor way of going about your your purpose i i certainly uh, feel the same type of issue around inclusivity i mean if you in include everybody at some level that's saying you're nobody and and, and you don't exist and, and yet when you're an entrepreneur and you want to hire somebody uh, can or, is it not likely that your political viewpoints will come out at some level i mean i have always argued that we are political beings we are by nature political beings and every business has a political stake it can be a you know an issue through some regulation that may or may not be around some way of controlling or establishing your PL or, or taxes i mean so these are things that are inevitably impacted by lawmakers so you as an entrepreneur will need to take take pay attention to political movements political mm -hmm. issues and so let's say in that when you're hiring people and let's say you stand for you you always say it's important to stand out stand for something mm. then you 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 have you can't shy away from certain political opinions or can't you don't you, you would i would say it sounds like you would probably desire to stand up for something that might be political and is that not something that you need to look at when you select well, employees i think a business should have a purpose beyond making money um and i think it should have a narrow focus around that it should have a focus around that so it should have something beyond making money that it does stand for and that it's happy to stand for and happy to lose people on um mm. whether that's political or not I don't know whether that needs to be the realm of business. And I think that's going to become more and more dangerous. Um, recently, there was an entrepreneur in um, who has spent the last 15 years building a tech conference in Ireland, uh, a guy called Paddy Cosgrove. Oh, yeah. the, web, the Web Summit. The Web Summit, right? Yeah. So, so 15 years worth of his life's work has gone into building one of the premier Web Summit events uh, or oh, technology events in Europe. Um, and he has, you know, up until a couple of weeks ago, he has this incredible network and he's super well connected and he can get on the phone with Elon. He can get on the phone with Google and, you know, all of these sorts of things. And, and on his Twitter, he took a, a stance around Israel and Palestine and, um, he took a, uh, pro-Palestine lean. I wouldn't say it was a stance. It was a lean. He, he, he publicly went public with his views that he was leaning towards pro-Palestinian um, uh, rhetoric. And um, immediately he is completely dumped by the entire tech industry and his name is Mud and the tech, and, and it's yet to be decided, but that that business may be over. Um, he's had a mass exodus of his um, funding partners and all of that sort of stuff. So this, this, this being political thing, I think there's going to be mounting evidence that companies should just stay the hell away from it. Um, now that's not a new idea. Um, you know, my, I, you know, I remember having chats with my grandfather um, not that long ago. He worked in a in a factory where um, you know you had union left leaning union members on the factory floor, and then you had right leaning conservative management and white collar workers on the in the executive, um, and you know everyone had different political opinions. But you park that to the side and you get on with manufacturing copper cabling um and and uh, we you know we just you can discuss a little bit of politics but look there you know for a very long time you just don't talk sex or politics or religion at, religion at the dinner table and you keep that so that wisdom must have we must have been through this cycle in the past at some point because we came up with that rule um and it became a very ironclad rule at one point um so there must have it must not be the first rodeo for us to go through this as a humanity to 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 learn the lesson of uh, pendulum. Let's get all of that out in the open, and we only align if we agree on all of that stuff. Uh, pendulum swings the other way. Let's not talk about sex, politics, or religion, and we can stay completely aligned if we don't talk about that stuff. Um, so uh, around the widget. Yeah, with the service, it's yeah. amazing. In what you just talked about, Dan, we we've gone from talking about sexuality, trans. We talked about religion, Palestine. We talked about politics, and 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 yeah, and each one of the, 
has created uh, a problem. It, it's a anyway. That, that's that's a fascinating great viewpoint, Dan. So we're at the end of twenty twenty three when this will go live. We're recording it in the beginning of November of twenty twenty three. But how would you characterize the state of entrepreneurship? What what are what are people who are out there now? trying to build businesses, doing, how's it going for them? Is there any way for you to generalize? Yeah, well, I would say for starters, it is definitely the greatest time in history to be an entrepreneur. There's more money than ever before. The definition of inflation is too much money looking for too few goods and services. So uh, that is, if that's not a billboard that should attract entrepreneurs, then you know what else is? Um, so there's more money than ever before. There's more talent available than ever before if you go online. So it used to be that your talent pool was a five-mile radius from your office, and um, now we have a talent pool in South Africa. We have a talent pool in the Philippines. We have a talent pool in India. We have a talent pool uh, available in the Nordic countries. So if I want to throw together an incredible team who are passionate about a particular thing, I could have my technologists who are building the widget in one place. I could have my customer success team in the Philippines. I could have my design team in Norway, right? So, you know, th this is now available to any startup without any barriers. This, this was the stuff of legends. You know, the most advanced companies on the planets could consider, you know, if we went back to the, the, the early 2000s, it would only be the Nikes of the world that could have a design team in Norway and a customer success team in the Philippines, that stuff was that was insane. Now that's just any startup. So um, we're living in that time. We're also we've had a huge disruption with AI. Every single product or service needs electrification, and everything's up for grabs. And when I say electrification, I'm using the analogy of electricity being invented and then every device becoming electric. So you know there was at one point hand washing machines, hand 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 movement washing machines and then they had to electrify washing machines so whoever was the leader at creating washing machines that you use with with a hand got disrupted by whoever was the leader at electrification of washing machines so we're going through this time where everything every business model is going to go, go AIification intelligent you know electric electrification through an artificial intelligence so you know, pick any industry that you like and say, well, you just add AI to that industry and become the, you know, become the disruptive force in that. And suddenly everything's up for grabs. Um, we're also in a world where the geographical borders have been completely lifted. And if you imagine what it must be like, if you had these like boxes containing water and then you lift the, you know, lift the walls out of those and the water just goes everywhere. That's kind of like what's going on at the moment, that in every local environment, there are these all, all these businesses that mostly exist because of geography. And then we've just taken the geographical limitation away. And suddenly it's like, oh, okay. So you're an accountant in Wimbledon. Uh, sorry, we now have an accountant in Bangalore that does a better job than you. Um, for so, less. For less, <laughs> yeah, and and better. Um, so, so it's like, boom. So this world of disruption is happening here. And then take the, the way of organizing efficiently. You know, the, the industrial revolution kind of yardstick is that if you organize a labor pool, you should see something like 100,000 to a million of revenue per employee, right? So you should be able to say something like a six figures of revenue per employee is the natural order of things. But if you reorganize a labor pool that you only use them when you need them and that you have a very flexible, agile labor pool and all of those sorts of things, there's really no reason, especially with technology, that you couldn't be seeing one to 10 million revenue per employee. Um, maybe 10 to 100 million revenue per employee would be outlier edge cases. But you know, certainly there are going to be companies that have 10 million revenue per employee um, that disrupt industries that were hundreds of thousands per employee. I'll give you a classic example, which is I think Kodak had something like 13,000 people working on, you know, effectively people wanting to share their family photos. Uh, and then Instagram comes along with 12 people, 13 people, and, you know, and, and basically gives people a way of sharing uh, family photos with different ways of developing those photos. And boom, Kodak's out, Instagram's in, 13 people replace 13,000 people. 
So we're going to see a lot of Kodak uh, Instagram moments in the future. So that's all driven by entrepreneurs. I think everyone needs to learn the entrepreneurial skill set. So regardless of whether you think you've got a a stable job, I think learning things like pitching skills, uh, creating partnerships, productization, um, you know, building personal, personal branding. Brand. Yeah, all of those things. Boom. Uh, you know, those are the ones that that everyone kind of has to has to learn now. So, in listening to you, I'm I'm thinking of the pitch that often is happening, where to private equity or or venture capitalists and my AI strategy, and it, it almost becomes a buzzword. And if you don't have AI, then your you know your multiple drops by lots. I used to work in the hairdressing industry, which is nominally a manual business where you you cut people's hair you apply color to various strands and then you shampoo and while the japan is trying to create machines to uh, to do all that it, it's still a very manual job yet is there a place for ai at l'oreal mm. and others so when you are working, I mean, I assume you are still hands-on and, and very much on the deck when it comes to KPI, key persons of influence, a program I know well and, and with great success. To what extent do you sort of mandate the ones who succeed to have a tech component, even if they're selling shampoos? Well, phase one is 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 role modeling it so all of our businesses have gone ai enabled um, in the last 12 months and um, we brought on ai you know chief ai officers uh, into the business and those sorts of things um so role modeling it and then next year it's really kind of pushing it as as a major agenda that people have to do that i've been running events all this year really pushing entrepreneurs to to get with the program but you take a bit hairdressing business there's there's like a hundred ways you could be using ai um so at the point of sale you could be having um you could be having uh filters that show people different hairstyles and what they might look like with different colors and uh, and different styles, so people can make better decisions immediately by looking and seeing, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. The supply chain definitely could be um, improved and optimized with uh, with AI. AI is going to pick up things that have been sitting around for too long and need to be moved and put on sale. Um, in the in the marketing and communications, there's a hundred different ways to use AI to create hyper personalized marketing. Um, so taking taking basic bits of data and you know enriching that data and then going for hyper personalization you know dear daniel um you know it's normally about every uh, 37 days that you get a haircut we haven't seen you for 60 days um, we just wanted to extend a, uh, a, a, a you know an offer for you to come back and see one of our stylists um yeah you know, those sorts of things. Or Daniel, we, you know, we noticed that you've been doing a lot of speaking, but, you know, we checked out your Instagram and we saw that you're doing a lot of speaking, public speaking. We'd love to um, talk to you about your on-stage style. You know, those are, those are certain things that are not that hard to, you know, hyper-personalization is not that hard for a, for a decent sized company to, um, to put in place. So, you know, the one size fits all marketing message is, is definitely going to die. Um, and big companies are famous for trying to come up with the one size fits all marketing message. But with AI, why not have a an interactive conversation that never ends with each customer, um, as though it's a single, as though the company is a person and the and the customer is a person, uh, and the the level of communication. If you imagine, if you imagine you go into your WhatsApp, and there is a ongoing WhatsApp conversation. That you're having with John Lewis, um, and it's essentially it's it's mostly an automated conversation, but it's a but it's it has the feeling of almost a WhatsApp conversation where John Lewis kind of has a sense as to how old the kids are and what the family life is like and what the holidays are and all of those sorts of things, and it's just connected with you as an individual. And it at first seems weird to be connected in that way, but very rapidly it feels like a massive value add um you know but as but as an analogy the way that it feels to pick up a conversation with a friend on whatsapp that you haven't spoken to for a while um could be what it's like talking to a brand 
Well, certainly I, I be, have been exploring this whole area. I mean, thinking about the medical industry, also a very manual thing. You go in, get checked up for your heartbeat or whatever with machines, of course, but there's a diagnostic component. And in the medical industry, there's a whole lot of places for automation and AI. Uh, as yet, we still are, are relying on doctors to do surgeries, but we know we can also do things from a distance. So there, there are indeed lots of different ways. And I, uh, I assume that in your scorecard, you have something that looks at the, tech, the technological infusion. Is that something that is actually in there? So in our score app, um, once people answer a scorecard, they start getting very automated and personalized emails. Oh, uh, from you guys? Our, well, no, from our customers. So oh, I see. any of our customers who subscribe to the score app, if one of their customers fills in a scorecard, let's say you now know 15 things about that customer, we just immediately start generating emails that are completely personalized to that particular customer. And we build email journeys based on that. It all just happens automatically. Um, and we also build scorecards using AI. So what used to take six hours plus takes six minutes uh, to produce a version one of an amazing scorecard concept just using AI. And then the AI codes it up as a landing page and a questionnaire series and a dynamic results page. So it just goes and builds a you know version a, a decent version one ready for customer facing uh, in a matter of minutes. Um, so you can create these campaigns on the fly and and where you where you would have gotten to in a in a week, uh, you'd probably be in a, in an hour or two. Um, so if I'm correct, then the score app is is some sort of white labeled CRM. Yeah, it's at a really crude way of describing it would be a quiz generator uh, that you create quizzes. Um, but quizzes, quizzes, if you kind of get into what is a quiz, it's asking customers a series of questions, them giving you their answers for those questions, and then treating them as a unique individual based on that quiz. So, I mean, if you sit down at a general practitioner and they hand you a clipboard and they ask you a bunch of questions, are you pregnant? Are you taking heart medication? Blah, blah, blah. They're going to then treat you differently based on how you answer those quiz questions, right? So um, so when we think of any brand, if a brand has the ability to ask you some scorecard questions, some quiz questions, and then it knows things about you that are relevant. So I'll give you an example. Imagine a scorecard that says, are you ready to run the London Marathon? Right? Have you run a marathon before? Have you got a training partner? Have you got the right shoes and equipment? Have you got a diet plan? Have you got a, a time in mind? Are you training uh, based on best practices? Blah, 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 blah. Have you read these books? Have you consumed this content? So it asks you these questions and then you go through. So very rapidly, within a, a minute or two, the system now understands whether you're a beginner running your first marathon or an experienced marathon runner who just travels around the world running marathons all the time. Um, and you're going to have a very, very rap very different conversation with those two people. Um, so the faster you can get on track with having those nuanced conversations, um, you know, the, the better. The ultimate example of this is, um, is the movie Her. I don't know if you've seen Her. Of course I have. Amazing movie, right? Of Naturally. course you have. So, you know, where Scarlett Johansson immediately starts responding with the tone of voice, the types of conversations to completely enroll the, the human in a personalized, intimate relationship um, that they want to be enrolled in, that they want to be taught having that, they, they want to have that uh, personal conversation. And the, the upshot at the end is where uh, he says, are you talking to other people right now? And she goes, yeah. And he says, how many people are you talking to right now? And he, she, she's like, well, about 4 million, but it doesn't mean that I'm not having a great conversation with you, you know? And he can't get his head around the fact that she's cheating on him with 3.99 million other people. Um, and, uh, you know, and this is this is essentially what our software does is, 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 it, is it very rapidly gets to the ability to have those personalized and intimate conversations with people by asking them to fill in a quiz or, uh, or what we call a scorecard um, at the beginning. So how does someone get this program, Dan? Oh, score so score, score app is, it's so our goal is to make it as simple and easy as Instagram, right? So data analytics and AI as easy as Instagram. So you go to scoreapp.com, you create a free account, 
and then you touch a button called create scorecard it'll uh, the ai will ask you two or three questions about who you are and what you're trying to achieve and what type of customer you've got and then it'll just start suggesting concepts um what about this what about this and then you choose a concept that you like and then it'll write the quiz questions and then you will then say yeah i like that and you say create scorecard and then the ai whips into gear writes a thousand words codes it all up for you in about three minutes or th well not even 13 seconds and then you go in and play right so you say okay well i want to add my logo i want to change the colors um so like a like a baker who's going to ice the cake uh, the way that he wants that or she wants that cake iced. So you're going to go in and, and ice the cake the way you want to ice the cake and make some adjustments, take out that question. I didn't like that in the end or put in a question that I didn't think of at the time. So you go in there and play around with that. And then probably 20, 30 minutes later, you're ready to just post on LinkedIn and say, hey, I just created an interesting scorecard about artificial empathy. Um, are you an empathetic leader? Uh, take the scorecard, find out your empathy score, um, and um, and and get re uh, and get content that's relevant for my new book. So um, very quickly, you can start engaging people around a concept, uh, and you know all the words are written and and it's ready to ready to rock and roll. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, very <laughs> sexy, very sexy, Dan. At the heart of this and everything you're talking about as far as using AI is the need for data. And in order to get that data is a need for trust. Where do you think we lie as a society and as with entrepreneurs in forging a trustworthiness sufficient for you to hand over details, vulnerabilities about your empathic levels to a stranger like Minter? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, this is this is the thing. To a stranger like Minter, I'd question that. So the first people who are going to the first people who are going to take that scorecard are the people who already know you and like you and trust you. Um, so that, so people who already have a personal brand are going to have a massive advantage for that reason. Um, and then let's say that the average person will happily answer about ten questions about themselves um, in order to get some information. So how do we learn to trust people or things? Well. We, we trust them in a kind of quid pro quo way that we, uh, you know, like if I was meeting you for the first time, I might have a short conversation with you um, at a conference and that went well. So why don't we sit down and have a longer conversation? Let's meet up for a coffee. Let's have a lunch or a dinner is maybe the next thing. Maybe let's get our families together and, and start having some chats. So it kind of, it would very rarely be a situation where you just jump straight from uh, meeting someone to let's get our families to, you know, come around to my place for dinner and all that sort Indeed. of stuff. Maybe in Arabic cultures, you would, right? You'd just invite people straight into the home. Open house. Um, uh, you know, which is one of the most delightful things about that culture. But um the, the you know so this you kind of these little mini exchanges go well and then you they lead to bigger exchanges so in companies you know you want to create something that is a short sharp questionnaire quiz and it delivers immediate value and it's like wow okay that was cool i spent you know 30 seconds answering some questions and then i got this, all this relevant content that was about me and helped me on my journey um so yeah i want to have a phone call and talk to someone on the team um so, you know, that, that essentially, like, like, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday, they created a quiz called, are you ready to sell your business for the, for the maximum amount of money? And um, you answer a series of questions and it gives you a, an overall score as to how ready you are to sell your business. Um, and because it's very insightful straight away, um, you go, oh, well, that was great. I wouldn't mind having a, a chat with the person who created this or I want to I want to take that further. Like I immediately learned something. So I want to, I want to, I don't want that to be the end of the journey. I want that to be the beginning. It seems like you need to be upfront with the value you're going to propose, the value exchange, and then immediately show that value through the insights that you can provide right up front. Y yeah, it's got to be... There's only a very small number of things that get cut through in a noisy marketplace. So the the brain is brilliant at filtering things out. Um, you know, so we have this limbic system that when it's fully functioning, you can walk down Oxford Street, and I can stop you at the other end, 
and say, how many people do you reckon you walk past? Or do you remember anything about anyone that you walked past? And the functioning brain actually filtered it all out and deleted it. And even though you were getting copious signals of information, you just turned everyone into blobs, walked around them and didn't crash into anyone, but didn't remember passing anyone either, right? So that's a healthy functioning brain. But at the same time, one of the most incredible things happens, which is you spot, if I spotted you on the other side of the street, I would go as if by magic, my brain goes, bing, Minter dials there and alerts me to you. And I cross the street, hey, Minter, how are you going? You know, good to see you, mm. right? So we're now having this conversation and mm. it's like that all that information was hitting the senses. The brain was filtering out everything, but then somehow knew to filter you in. Um, and it wasn't a conscious thing. It was an unconscious thing. This is what we're up against when it, when we're trying to take a business to market. We're trying to get through those filters. So the only things that get through those filters, it's a very narrow set of things, but one of them is is value, like delivering value quickly. We I call this gifting, gifting something of value, giving value before you receive anything, just like putting the value, reversing the value equation of rather than you give me something, I'll give you something of value. It's like, I'll give you something of value up front. Um, and companies that are very good at gifting cut through that limbic system very well. Um, so that's only one of like, there's only five things really that get through and like, you've got uh, things that are very sexy. So we pay attention to sexiness, things that are very strange, uh, like r randomly out of the ordinary uh, things that are um, dangerous, you know, threatening. Um, so there's, there's a very limited number of things that will get through that filter. Um, I, I love it. That is, I, I, as I recall, quite a piece of your oversubscribed book. There's a bit of that. Yeah, that is. Yeah. yeah. Well, so listen, Dan, we've got a little bit of time. But I just want to ask you two, two questions. One's a little bit heavier than the other. But just quickly, uh, Twitter, the, the, the movement X, Elon and everything. Uh, how, what's your viewpoint? Is it going, is it, all the work we've created to have followers, can we say goodbye to them? Or what, what, what do you think about that? I think. I think there comes a point where you have to be very naive to bet against Elon. Um, Elon's an, an enigma wrapped in a riddle. He's he's someone who constantly keeps you on your toes as to will it work, will it won't work. Is he is he is he crazy? Is he a genius? I think he his personality is very much living on that knife edge. Um, but somehow, as if by magic, he tends to drop it in, drop it into the uh, into the goal. Um, so. I can't. I just can't bring myself to bet against Elon. I, I mean, obviously, you and I, as as people who have experience in marketing, would never flush away brand equity like Twitter. Um, you know, that would just be insanity, um, and especially for something as crass as X, um, as you know, ridiculous. But you know, once again, do you bet against Elon, or do you? <laughs> I don't. I don't know that I, I'm. I'm brave enough to bet against Elon. Um, I think that, uh, I think that I wouldn't necessarily throw away your Twitter account or your Twitter handle just yet. Well, at the same time, if you want to be seen on Twitter, you're going to have to pay. Well, I, I do tend to agree with what he's saying, which is that in an AI world, there are so many bots that you need some form of filter that if a company wants to create a million bot accounts, to just surround you, it can do that, but it doesn't necessarily want to pay eight bucks a month for each of them because now we're talking eight million a month to maintain those bots. So having a filter of a like that for me, that few dollars a month means that we're tipping the platforms in the direction of we are the customer versus the advertiser. I think that's worth investing in. And I can see that you're not probably not a bot because you pay. Um, that's worth investing in. So he is making a valid point. And in changing times, I don't think you'll get everything right, but he is making a very valid point. Um, you know, if you're not paying for something, you're the product, you're not the customer. It's um, free. Hmm. Yeah. You know, why do we why do we distrust Facebook? We don't like Facebook because we get the overarching sense that the that we're that we're the chicken and marks the farmer and it's like oh wait a second why is he giving me chicken feed every day 
right? Why, well, I'm not sure, quite sure. Like, why, why is this relationship? How does this relationship work? Oh, wait a second. I'm being sold. <laughs> okay. I'm not the, I'm not the, I'm not the, the client here. I'm the, uh, I'm the product for the client. Mm, and in another space, conventions or conferences, when it's free tickets, uh, you get people you expect to be off. sold to. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that was great. Um, so watch this space, um, watch space in general with X, SpaceX, X. <laughs> um, the last question was really, and I hope you have enough time to I want to talk to you about mental health. I was doing a podcast yesterday with a, a, an entrepreneur who went down and, and saw the deepest dark side of, of a difficult business with others and things, family and, and mental health in entrepreneurial world it's a very it can be a very lonely place to to be i was wondering what your advice is with regard to mental health in today's world is it is it something that is is a preoccupation uh, and or is there a, a strong way to get through and keep your sanity as you go through the, all the entrepreneurial journey that you talk about that's so predictable uh, yeah i think um i think there's a real disconnect between the world that we were taught to uh, be part of and the world that is. Um, so our mental models don't match to reality at the moment. And that's, and that's probably causing a lot of underlying angst. Um, so the mental model of having a safe, secure job and having a safe, secure income and all of those sorts of things doesn't match with the world that we're living in. And um, the mental model of being able to afford a home. Um, so, you know, we've dismantled some pretty fundamental things that kind of kept people's mental health in check. So for example, um, affordable housing. Um, it, I don't think it can be overstated how important it is for humans to feel that they are in some way securing their residency, that they have a plan in place to have a home um, and what that does to, to mental health. You know, when you don't know how at some point, you know, you're going to get old and that you don't have any plan whatsoever to be able to afford housing at that point, there's a psychological tension um, and then add to that the removal of church and community. So, you know, the mental, the mental health model of sitting with people in your local community and being in communion with them. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of had to go to church uh, in the last few years just because of, you know, school and uh, you know, my kids go to a church school and, um, church attendance is something that is expected. And so someone who didn't go to church for a very long time and doesn't really think deeply about, you know, the Bible and all of those sorts of things. But I tell you what, there is absolutely something about sitting in those chairs with people and breathing together and having a moment of peace together and a moment of reflection together. That's very, very powerful and it's very human. Um, and we don't have many ways of doing that. Um, especially with local environment. It used to be that you couldn't be a mouthy keyboard warrior because you had to sit next to people in church who were different to you and who had different opinions. You had to curb your views towards a shared identity. Um, so that, you know, we've dismantled that. We've dismantled um, the work environment. We've dismantled affordable housing, all, all of those sorts of things. So our mental models that include those things are no longer being cared for. Um and I think the affordable housing one is probably the leading thing. The fact that the if you were born, if you were born after 1975, um, you are totally fucked when it comes to housing. You there is no like you can go as you can go into Chelsea Kensington and have a look at what were house prices in the 1970s. They were sixty or seventy thousand pounds when household income was twenty five thirty thousand pounds in Kensington. You know, now that same house is going to be a million pounds and incomes haven't risen that much, right? No. So um, so you've got this whole cohort of people who have absolutely no idea how they're going to keep a roof over their head. Um, you know, we've, we've turned housing into a status symbol. We've turned housing into a investment vehicle when originally it was just a like the most basic thing in the world was you just need a place to sleep every night and you need a place to start a family and ha and house your family um so so anyway those things i think having a big big impact 
on the entrepreneurial side, you have to be very, very careful not to be lulled into the false sense of security that sharing your mental health journey uh, publicly is a good idea. Uh, Because there's a lot of people who are saying, share your mental health journey publicly. Um, And the truth is that the vast majority of people who are customers, partners, friends, employees will nod and smile and then move as far away from you as possible. You've got to be really careful that you pick a few trusted individuals who can help you bounce, reflect, um, and do all of those sorts of things. I'm, I'm going to say something that's very unpopular to say, but for most people, you got to put on a, you got to have a bit of stiff upper lip and put on a brave face for the big wide world. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur, um, the truth is that your employees, your customers, your partners, your investors want to see that you're completely straight and narrow, eye on the prize, um, un- unfazed, ready to rock and roll. <laughs> That's what they want to see. Um, now, behind the scenes might be a bit of a different story. You need some people to talk to about that who are safe players, safe actors around you. You could play that role for them because we all we all go in and out of having, you know, varying degrees of being in a good place or, or not. But um, I've seen it end terribly when people start sharing uh, too much uh, in a public environment, hoping that people love them, care for them, want to help them, uh, and actually people distance. So we've got to be careful. Um, it's still a very human need uh, for people to feel safe that their boss, their their investment, um, their partner is, 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 is uh, solid. Is solid, yeah. Well, I appreciate the candor, Dan, and, uh, and I frankly agree. We, we talk about resilience a lot, uh, but for me, that's a code word for stiff upper lip, the idea of being resilient and just get on with it. And, and, and yet, of course, there's a place to talk about it and all that, just like you say. So really great words, Dan. I could have gone on. I think uh, you can imagine we could have gone on. We didn't even talk about Rethink Press and the books and so on and so forth. Lordy, lordy, lordy. But, you know, time went. Time is important. <laughs> Dan, how can someone... Follow you, get your new book, uh, The Marketing Scorecard Marketing, um, and or check out your writings and, and such. Well, yeah, so follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm putting more and more stuff on LinkedIn, um, and I'd love to connect. And then um, the the Scorecard Marketing book, we give away for free with every free with every free account on ScoreUp. So if anyone wants to try ScoreUp, you, you create a free account. Um, and then somewhere in there is a little, either we email you or there's a little pop-up that says, would you like a free copy of the book? And we send you a free copy of the book, Scorecard Marketing, which explains the whole strategy. But realistically, you can shortcut all of that. Talk to my customer success team or, um, you know, join one of our little workshops that we run for customers. Um, it's a it's a fun journey. It's really cool. Um, it's, uh, you know, we've got a lot of big brands that are starting to use this approach and they're loving it. Congratulations, Dan. Great to have you on the show. And I look to uh, communing with you, uh, maybe not in Oxford Street, but somewhere close nearby soon. See you soon, Minta. So a really heartfelt thanks for listening to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast service. As ever, ratings and reviews are the real currency of podcasts. And if you're really inspired, I'm accepting donations on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You'll find the show notes with over 2,100 blog posts on Minterdial.com on topics ranging from leadership to branding, tech, and marketing tips. Check out my documentary film and books, including the last one, the second edition of Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence that came out in April 2023. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me Precipitating the danger to feel free Trust is a reason, still I won't tell the lie I sit here passively, oh
Jim Stroud podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud podcast. <laughs> 